All right, how you doing? My name's Matt Barr and you're listening to episode 11 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. Yeah, it's my podcast where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. So thank you as ever for listening to and or downloading the podcast. Much appreciated as usual. So it's summer, uh, which for me means sea swimming and uh, generally wishing I lived somewhere that had proper surf because although Brighton does get the odd wind swell ripple, it's uh, not very regular, not least in the summer. But I've got a few trips lined up, so I'm looking forward to that. Looks like I'm going to be heading to Senegal later in the year on a surf trip. So obviously pretty stoked about that. And then I'm going to head over to Ireland in September and catch up with uh, Fergal Smith and Eastie Britain for the podcast, which I'm obviously pretty excited about. I'm going to go and see Fergal on the farm. And Fergal's going to uh, yeah talk me through the uh, amazing community project he's been working on for a few years over there. And hopefully I'll get to go surfing with those guys and not get too terrified. And elsewhere, I was really chuffed with the response to the last episode with Pete Helicar. I had a feeling that people would be into Pete's worldview and the feedback's been great. Um, So I'm glad everyone enjoyed it. Thank you everyone that got in touch to let me know about that. Obviously, I'm going to do more skateboarding guests. I've been speaking to Lucy Adams. Um, I've been speaking to the Long Live South Bank guys who I'm hoping to get on to find out about their worthy work. And I'm also working on longtime sidewalk editor Ben Powell, who I think would be a brilliant guest, but who is saying he's a bit too shy. So uh, fingers crossed I can talk Ben round there. So enough yibble from me and on to today's guest, who is surfer and writer Jamie Brissick. So this one marked a bit of a departure for me. Uh, When I started the podcast, I was pretty anal about wanting to do all the interviews in person. Firstly, the completist in me really wanted to get a picture with each interviewee, but I blew that one almost immediately by forgetting to get one with Cotty during the very first interview I did. Don't. And the other reason I've uh, wanted to do all the interviews in person was because I, I think when you listen to podcasts and they do them on Skype, they generally sound pretty terrible and I didn't really want to go down that road so that was how I was feeling until Jamie agreed to chat and uh, when we were trying to work out a date to do the podcast I realized it was potentially going to be months before he was in the UK or I was in LA or New York which is where he splits his time between so I decided to chill the fuck out a little bit and relax my Skype ban and uh being smart lads, me and Jamie also worked out how to record the interview without it sounding like that awful Skype business. And I think we did pretty well. So uh, yeah, see what you think. So who is Jamie Brissick? Well, Jamie is a surfer. He's an ex-pro tour competitor. He's an author, a journalist, a novelist, a documentary maker, an autodidact and a general chronicler of surfing's counterculture and uh, wider scene. I think alone among the board sports, perhaps because it's simply older, surfing's definitely got a rich literary history. And Jamie takes his place among the line of classic surf writers such as Drew Campion, Tim Baker and Matt Warshaw. He's a writer of uh, uncommon power and sensitivity. And for the past decade, Jamie's been immersed in one project, chronicling the story of Westerly Windina through his magisterial book, Becoming Westerly. And now through the documentary, which he was on the point of finishing when we spoke. So if you've been following the podcast for a while, you'll be familiar with the tagline, uncovering the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. 
And what Jamie Brissick has spent the last decade chronicling is, make no mistake, a truly fascinating and at times intensely strange story. It's the story of how Aussie surf champion, pioneer and innovator and legend Peter Druin became the glamorous Westerly Wendina. And Jamie's book, Becoming Westerly, traces the whole story from Peter's youth on the Gold Coast to Westerly's journey to Bangkok for gender reassignment surgery. It's a brilliant multi-layered piece of work that handles the story's incredibly sensitive themes remarkably well. And as it unfolds, it seems to become much more complex and multi-layered. And at its heart is a simple question, really. Is Westerly for real? If you haven't read it, don't worry. Yeah, we do spend the first half of the conversation getting pretty in-depth about the book, which I reread before we chatted. But Jamie's such a, an entertaining conversationalist with a quicksilver mind that it really doesn't matter. And if anything, hearing his insights into the story, I think are just going to make you keener to read the book yourself. Elsewhere, we talked about Jamie's career and how he got his break in surf writing. Listening to him reminisce about how he launched his career is pretty nostalgic, really, because it's a glimpse into a lost world where there were actually magazines and they had budgets and big time designers like David Carson. I really enjoyed uh, listening to him talk about that because it's really reminiscent of how I got my own start in journalism. And it's all good stuff for anyone listening because ultimately as we've discovered a few times it's about the hustle and how you've got to remain open to possibilities and the new opportunities that you might not even have been looking for when life throws them at you and that's the thing really to take from this episode above all Jamie Brissick is very open as he says himself at one point what attracted him to the writing lifestyle wasn't an interest in having things I was interested he says in experiencing a different lifestyle As you'll hear, Jamie has suffered unbelievable hardships as well, something he talks very eloquently and movingly about, yet he's still inquisitive and he's still open to life. And that to me is no small thing. It seems to me that if you can go through what Jamie's been through and still make the decision not to take life personally, then that's a very admirable trait. And uh, I think it's a very inspiring thing to hear. So cheers, Jamie. I greatly enjoyed talking to you. And I look forward to continuing the conversation over a beer in person at some point in the not too distant future. So here it is, my chat with surf writer Jamie Brissick on Chronicling the Margins. Enjoy. So Jamie, thank you for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All good. So you're in LA, right? I'm in Los Angeles. I live in Malibu. And what are you, uh, you're, you're in the middle of a project right now, right? So what are you working on at the minute? So I've been working on a documentary about Westerly Wendina, who is the former Peter Druin, um, and uh, a transgender surfer from Australia that I've been writing about, making this documentary about, obsessed with for uh, about eight or nine years now. Well, I've read the book. I've, I think I mentioned this to you when we've been chatting, um, and, I, and I know the story. But perhaps for people who are listening who who aren't familiar, could you briefly outline the the, the story quickly? Sure, sure. Um, so Peter, so Peter Druin was a a champion surfer in the '60s and '70s. He was a great inventor. He was a, an actor. He was kind of a, a, a Renaissance man. Um, much more than just a surfer, but that was what he was known for most. And I, I, I uh, encountered him in a, in the pages of a surf magazine in the mid '80s. He he had taken out an ad for what he called the Super Challenge, 
which was this one-on-one showdown with him and four-time world champion Mark Richards. And at the time, Peter was about 35. He was past his prime. And in the ad on the page, he was wearing underwear and his his torso was slathered in ketchup. And there were these taunts kind of calling out Mark Richards. Um, It was it was almost, you know, it was almost drawing from like boxing or wrestling. It was it was like nothing I'd ever seen in surfing. And uh, and so I, you know, was interested in this in this person. And um, so how how old were you at that at this time? At that time, I would have been 18. Okay, so you're like in the thick of it, like living surfing. I was living surfing and I was obsessed with Australian surfers because that was not only were many of the best surfers in the world from Australia at that time, but but also it was just, the, you know, something I've done my entire life was just sort of project and, and imagine other places, greener pastures elsewhere. And so so I found Australian surfing fascinating and, um, and Peter Drew was one of them. And in any case... He had invented man-on-man surfing. He did. He did kind of all these different things, and and I became a pro surfer. I actually kind of brushed shoulders with Peter Druin in in 1989 at the Gunston 500 in South Africa, and this is later on, much later in his career. He was 40 now. He'd taken out an ad in one of the local papers um, looking for a wife. He was at, he was advertising, uh, you know, a wife, and he held what was essentially a casting in a hotel. Um, to find a woman that he would bring back to Australia and marry and have a child with. And um, this was, you know, the height of apartheid. So I think there were people that wanted to leave South Africa. Um, and so he did that. All the above happened. Um, but anyway, cutting to 2009, uh, I, I'd been a pro surfer. I was working as a journalist and I got an assignment from the Surfer's Journal magazine to write a profile of Peter, who was now living as a woman. Uh, Westerly Windina. So I went to Australia to write the profile. Had no idea what I was going to encounter, but I met Westerly and we we hit it off. Um, and then that led to the book, the documentary, several other profiles. I mean, it's been s- such a, a a project I've been you know immersed in like I've never been before. It's been it's been fascinating. So what was it about the project that you found so fascinating? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of layers to this. And it is. I can I can understand as a journalist how I mean, especially as a, a journalist working in surfing. When you heard that story, you were like, actually, that's pretty much the most interesting story in surfing right now. I mean, was it was it that simple? Yeah, no, it wasn't that simple. I mean, it, it was partly. Um, I mean, I you know, I came to writing about surfing kind of through the back door. I um, I was a pro surfer. Uh, 1982, my career ended somewhat abruptly. I was living in Sydney, Australia at the time, and I got a job working for Waves and Tracks magazine, and I wrote for them. And so I always had a kind of imposter's complex. And I also, you know, just because I was my, my, my writing in surf magazines was based more on sort of street cred or water cred, if you will. As you'd been a pro surfer. Yeah, as opposed to being a serious writer. So there was always this part of me that wanted to, you know, do something more legit, I guess. And then, so there was, so, when I met Westerly and, and it kind of just grew into a much larger project where it was, it transcended surfing. It was really a human interest story or it was, you know, it was kind of going into something that I, that I was new for me. That, that was appealing. But I guess before that, you know, I, I came to surfing in the late seventies and the, the surf world I encountered then was so kind of open-minded and all embracing. And it was full of misfits, outcasts, eccentrics. I mean, it was so, it was so rich in that way, and and by the time I'd become a pro surfer in the late eighty, mid to late eighties, it had become almost the opposite of that. It had become more homogenized. 
more kind of professional and athletic and serious. And it was as if in the in the efforts to get the, the, the performance levels of surfing up and to kind of sell it, if to you know, to, to make it kind of viable to the masses on some level, it sort of it 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 cleaned out all the great characters. It sort of washed them away. And uh and I had always I'd always had a hard time with that. I I, I just it it's you know, there was there was a kind of um, narrow-mindedness in the surf culture that I really, that wasn't why I started surfing. It was, it was, it was sort of troubling for me because it was this thing that I'm a product of and that I love deeply, but I also see, see parts of it that uh, it's like coming from a family and you're so close to it that you see things, parts of, you know, you see your family through this lens of, uh, of things that you don't like. And, and so anyway, when I found out that Peter Drew was living as a woman, I, I, I thought this, kind of kicks against all the taboos of surfing. This is like, this is sort of subversive within the surf culture. And I'm so ready to get behind this person because um, I guess on some level, I had my own ax to grind there, if you will. So how would you define this conservatism that, you, that you're describing? Um, how to define... Um, I mean, I mean, you I- said homogenized. Do you, do you, is it literally just the fact that there's everything's moving in the same direction you know i could i could there's two i could i could approach this from two angles i could approach it from like a embittered spiteful angle and i could i could or a more <laughs> kind one and i guess the kinder one would be um i mean here's here's what i think i've traveled around the world as a surfer no matter you know at one point i thought not so much i thought but my friends when i first started traveling as a surfer my friends thought oh what a what an amazing life you you know i'd become quote unquote the world traveler and and after doing that for a decade or so, I realized that, yes, I've traveled around the world and my passport is full of these stamps, but the world that I've been tra- traveling in is really, everyone's p- praying to the same God. You know, wherever you go, it's, there's going to be, the swell's coming up tomorrow, um, you know, watching the surf contests, reading the magazines. Um, you know, you can do that in France, you can do that in, in Brazil, you can do that in Australia, South Africa. Uh, Tahiti, etc. But when you're in the thick of the surf culture, that everyone it's it's the same interest. So you get different languages and you get different cultures. But in in many ways, it's all sort of bending towards this obsession with surfing. And in many ways, that's the greatest thing about surfing is it is it's so all consuming that it it can it can eat up an entire lifetime. And I think in many ways, like when I say the kinder version, that's it's rare that people in a lifetime get something they're they're so excited about and obsessed with. I mean, it's it, I would never I would never like try to diminish one's something someone's really really passionate about, but it can create a one dimensionality. It can create um, you know people that are not without broad interests, and 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 in that it's sort of how to say it's. I mean, I almost like probably any religion or cult. It's sort of we're we're sort of bowing in this direction. Why would you ever want to bow in any other direction? And as someone who had had sort of a coming of age or a realization at one point in my surfing life that I want more than this. I don't want to just look back on my life and go, oh, okay, I I followed this blueprint or paradigm of, of being a surfer. And I never, I mean, I had, I had a moment where I just sort of questioned it. I thought, why do if I keep going down this track, I can really see what I, what life's going to be like in my thirties, what life's going to be in my forties, what life's going to be in my fifties. And the other thing, and this is a very personal part of it, is having been a competitor, performance was a big part of it, and athleticism was a big part of it. And so, 
I had, on some level, it was sort of maybe I did my best surfing already, and I've still got a lot of years ahead of me. And yes, you know, like 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 a musician or like an artist, you can keep you can keep doing your your thing and do it forever. But when you're when your sort of ego is invested in it on some level of, you know, it it requires sort of a gymnastic quality, and you're getting older, it can be. It can be a thing where it's like diminishing returns. You keep doing this and it's not going to get any better. It, in fact, it's just going to humble the hell out of you and you're going to be frustrated. So I felt all, all that stuff. And you, you mentioned um, characters in the past that you felt, you know, did, didn't represent this conservatism or, or were originally, you know, they were, they were different from the prevailing surf culture. So who are you thinking of there? I mean, Mickey Dora would be the obvious one that comes to mind. Um, you know, I, I think it's and, and they're less, they're more people I encountered in movies and magazines than people I I met in person. But then, but then, to to, to contradict that, when I when I I landed at Malibu in the late seventies, and I was a little kid. I was 13, 14 years old, or even younger, twelve, and. Uh, you know, there were, it was like, it was like a cliche, it was like a Fast Times at Ridgemont High cliche. You know, there were vans with smoke coming out of them and there were airbrushes on the side and there were these long haired dudes with puka shell necklaces and long gunny single fins. And, um, and they were, they were, you know, countercultural. They were, um, they were not playing by society's rules. And so, you know what I Dora would be like the the perfect sort of archetype for what I'm talking about, but I saw it on a more I saw it on a level of just the the layman surfer people whose names you would not know, but they were there and they were they were kind of living their surfing dream, and this was happening in metropolitan Los Angeles, where there are these other people chasing get, trying to get rich, trying to trying to buy things, and and here was here were these guys at the beach that really just didn't, they saw like there was much more valuable in the Dawn Patrol. You know, it was, it was like, I'm going to sleep in my van and get, be the first guy out in the water. And, and that's my version of killing it in Los Angeles, which was so, so different to what was, what I was, what was, what else was around me, I guess. So that, that countercultural thing was the surfing culture back then. And you think that's basically surfing's moved a long way from that now. Yes. Big time. Um, and I don't, and I don't, you know, I was half jokingly joking when I said earlier about being bitter. I mean, I, it's not, I don't, there's, it's not like I look at it in some, as some terrible thing. I look at it as it's just change, but, but I also can't deny that change. And I can't deny that there was a time when, you know, sir, the, the, the surf scene, it was as if people were in on this secret, you know, there was as if, as if there was this like culture of people who were doing something that their values were very different to what was around it. And now it's, now it's kind of cross pollinated or melded with the more mainstream or conventional values. Do you think it's inevitable with something like surfing? Cause it, it seems to happen to all of them, doesn't it? Skateboarding, even snowboarding, you know, this it's, it almost seems to be an arc that these sports go through where originally they're, yeah, a countercultural phenomenon, if you like, and then as the mainstream discovers them, it becomes diluted to the point that yeah, it does change into something. I mean, do you think there's any in in modern surf culture? There's there's anything playing out 
that still has that original sensibility that you're describing? You know, it's. Uh, I think it's such a good question, Matt. And and I think I do think it's inevitable. I think you're right. I think all these sports are sort of too new. Where I'm, we're literally in in a in a sort of whatever. You know, that it hasn't it hasn't gone gone. They haven't been going on for centuries, at least in a way that we can sort of um, monitor or or study. To, yeah, to it's be been able, documented. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think I think if we were to run, you know, jump a hundred years forward in surfing, you would. What I'm saying to you now, the 17 year old kid at when he, you know, in his midlife would be saying the same thing. It's almost like I think if you do anything for 30 years or more, you start to see its changes, and then it becomes um, a thing of, uh, you know, it's it's easy to fall into nostalgia and the good old days or what have you. As for today, I mean, there are, there are like counter trends in surfing or I don't even want to call them trends but counter movements in surfing that kick against if the mains if the if the mainstream of surfing is sort of commercialized surfing and that is sold via the WSL and you know the the guys on the world tour and if that's like the apex or the or the most mass mass uh, marketed side of surfing there are counter movements that go against it but the thing is is all those counter movements are almost reacting to that on some self-conscious level like it, i don't you can't get that purity back because we're just you would that purity would come from you know some some kid from some remote part of the world that's never seen a surf magazine or watched a movie but i think every single kid is sort of fed all that so what 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 may appear to be non-mainstream or non not influenced by commercial interests is inevitably influenced by that, and and therefore the the sort of there is like a, a kind of soul movement or a you know shape your own boards, ride alternative equipment, don't compete. That that that's really prevalent in surfing today. But it's still it's it's aware that there's this. It's looking over at its cousins with the colored singlets on in a in the you know world tour event in Fiji, and it's it's aware of that. So it's it's not able to operate with the purity of the guys I described who were, you know, at that period, there was no there was no viable way to make your living as a surfer. And therefore, when they were kind of, quote unquote, dropping out, they were genuinely dropping out. They weren't dropping out and sort of putting a sticker on their board and saying, I can possibly sell my dropping outness to the world. You know, that's they what I, an, I They didn't have an Instagram account. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With the, that they were using to very successfully sell that dropping out lifestyle. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, which is kind of the modern take on it, isn't it, really? It's, it's fabulously ironic. I mean, and I think it's kind of cool, too. I mean, when it works, it works. And it's, yeah. it's, like, it's like it reminds me of like Malcolm McLaren and the Sex Pistols or something. Yeah. So it brings us to Westerly. So, the, so that's contextualized it really well. So in this story, you, you saw a, a something different in surf culture. And obviously, like we say, this story's got so many levels to it. You know, you've got a... I mean, Australian surf culture, A, and then you've got Peter Druin, huge personality, and then you've got this very modern transgender story. So did you start with the, the documentary or did you originally, well, you started with the article, I know, but and then you've obviously you've written a book and you're doing the documentary. Which came first out of those, out of those two? Yeah, so I got the assignment to write the profile. And, and when I did, I met Westerly near her home in, in Queensland, Australia, near Surfer's Paradise. And we had lunch. And I was so fascinated by um, this person, you know, and, and, and it was, excuse me, 
it was kind of like the, um, as a writer and someone interested in people, it was the sort of dream exchange. I mean, she came all dressed up before we'd even sat down to lunch. She was sort of presenting Westerly and explaining why she, she, I mean, I think the very first thing she said to me is this, I, I can't explain it, but this girl has just inhabited me. And here's, you know, formerly a man for 50 plus years. Um, this girl's in me. She's not going anywhere. And, um, she's an incredible girl. And it was almost, and then Peter was spoken of in the third person past tense. So it was sort of this, it was almost as if it was a, a mother talking about her deceased young child or, or child, you know, she, the way she referred to Peter, it was, it was as if he was somewhere separate. And so anyway, I became obsessed by that. I wrote the profile. I wrote several more iterations of the profile. Then we started making the documentary. And I'm making the documentary with Alan White, who's a director and a couple of great producers. And and then as we were going along, the story just kept growing. And uh, and I had the idea that I would like to write a book because it was becoming so sort of personal. And then I realized that through Westerly, there was a lot I wanted to say about my own life in surfing, I guess. So the book is not a traditional sort of biography. It's more a kind of biography slash memoir. There's a lot of... Yeah, I mean... Yeah, there's exactly there's there's the there's the story of of your relationship with Westerly. There's the bigger story. There's the story of the documentary. There's yeah, I mean there's there's a it's uh it's there's a lot to it basically. Yeah. So, I mean, we should probably say that the most recent development then is that Westerly now seems to be Peter again. Yes. So. Yeah. Uh, and this and this is really recently, isn't it? This is perhaps what a month or two ago no it's a it's more than that it's it's about nine months ago i think now that i that that we got word that that westerly had gone back to being peter um and we should say as well that westerly did um have surgery right so yes yeah and that's that that's obviously one of the key probably the wrong phrase to use but set pieces in the, in the book isn't it you know it's one of the one of the the main the main sort of parts of the whole experience yes so so what have you spoken to Peter? Is it Peter now then, or is it Westerly now? Back, I know it's just back to being Peter for the most part. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And have you spoken to Peter about this? Yes, we we went and we we um, we filmed. We interviewed Peter, talking about you know first there was the change from Peter to Westerly, and then there was the change from Westerly back to Peter, and we went to to Australia to interview him, and that's that's kind of the. That is the final scene of this film. Um, I, I, I'm, I hesitate to say too much only because I would love... <laughs> we're almost yeah, no, done. of course. No, and I, course. I don't mean to be... Uh, I, I just don't want to say that much because it's in the film and I, 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 I would hate to um, spoil that what is what to my mind is, is really... It's so interesting and... And, um, and yeah, I, I, if, if, if we were talking a year from now and the film was out in the world, I would probably... Have a lot to say, but I I almost don't want to blow it. If that's okay, no, of course, yeah, of course. I mean, what, one of the things I did want to ask you about is, you know, throughout the book, it seems that the reaction to Westerly is 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 split on two in two lines, isn't it? You know, there's either like this conservative disgust, really, and and I'm talking about among the surf community and among Westerly's peers. You know, there's there's some pretty vociferous, you know, aggressive reactions to it. 
Um, or then there's a couple of reactions I'm thinking of Barton Lynch maybe and Derek Hind where they they seem almost stoked about the whole thing and and they they talk about it in the spirit in which you're talking about it which is like well yeah this is this is basically unconventional and it's somebody that that's expressing themselves in a unique way and that's what they seem to admire in it but you you seem to almost let the reader decide in the way that you present it in the book you know the question seems to be like is it an attention seeking con which mm-hmm. is basically what a lot of people think um or is it genuine mm-hmm. and um i mean is that fair to say is that is yeah. did you did you did you play it like that deliberately so you let the the reader almost like make up their own mind i try i did i and i i didn't want to well here's the thing what was so interesting for me and and i guess you know, again, going back to why I was fascinated with this. I mean, I don't. I didn't even know why. I, if 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 I were asked, you know, why are you in this story so deeply? A few years ago, I would, I could try to put it into words, but I really couldn't explain. But I think the biggest thing is in the beginning, you know, there were the sort of skeptics. There were Peter Druin's peers who thought this is just a ruse. This is an act, um, and until basically the 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 the, the sort of there was a kind of put your money where your mouth is thing among the friends where until he gets his dick cut off, that was literally the words used by some of them. That's not, those aren't my words, by the way. Um, until he gets his dick cut off, to my mind, it's just an act. It's a scream for attention. And to- Yeah, there's a lot There's a lot of stories, aren't there, from, from the past where they're all like, oh, he's done stuff like this for years. And, you know, and there's all these anecdotes about what a performer he is and he, he'd been and... When he was Peter, obviously, yeah, no, so they all they all seem to see it as just like, oh yeah, it's just the latest thing, didn't they? For sure, and into the to be fair to them, that you just reminded me of something important to say here. So Peter was an actor; he'd studied acting, he'd been in films, he's been been in TV, did a lot of commercials, and he was, you know, a performer. I mean, there was a great story that Shane Haran had told me about Peter being at one of the um, awards banquets for a contest, and I think he was called up to the stage to get something. And along the way, he gets up among all of his peers and he sort of puts his hand on his heart and he starts to sort of stumble a little bit and he grabs onto a chair and he very dramatically like knocks that chair down and several other chairs and just falls to the floor and everyone screams and runs to him. Or not screams, but you know, they, they, they're, they're surfer dudes, they don't scream, but they, they ran to like take care of him. And then I think he even like squirmed on the floor or fake dead until like, an, you know, the, the uh, ambulance came and then right as they went to like resuscitate this guy who presumably had a heart attack, he just hopped up and bowed. Like so he did things that were very much about performance and messing with his friends. And and so 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 yeah, so they thought like, okay, you you're now living as a woman and and making a big spectacle of it and drawing in as much media as you can. This is bullshit. And 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 I mean I literally you know, I had I had his peers literally saying to me like I appreciate that you're an earnest journalist, but you might be taken for a ride here. So, well, and also, it seemed to me that a lot of them wanted you to be proved wrong, you know, in some way. Yes, yeah, for sure. There was all that, but I guess the thing that w- was w- what made it interesting for me is I might have gone into it going, okay, these guys are saying like until he until he has gender reassignment surgery, this is illegit, and then that question ter- become became not as simple as that. It became murkier, and it became sort of at, you know, the division between real life and performance. And if you're an actor, and Peter Druin and Westerly, and now Peter again, is an actor in, in such a deep way, you don't even really maybe know your motivations for things. You know, I mean, you, 
The same way if we did, if you and I watched a bunch of TED Talks right now, we could glean from those TED Talks this idea of, of, of you know, imagining your life the way you want it, right? Like the whole kind of like self-improvement culture is built on, you know, daily uh, affirmations and, 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 and these things of like trying to create your life to your to your desire. And, you know, that's there's the like moderate levels of that and there's very extreme levels of that. And I think Peter Druin was someone who always did the very extremes and versions of that. So so being westerly, him him becoming westerly, whether it was divine intervention from above or whether it was partly the uh, the desire to be on show and to get to be in the be a spectacle, it's there's no clean lines there. They're both blurring back and forth, and they're kind of yeah, they're fluid. So it you know I I I've said this before and talking about this book, but it, it sounds like a, 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 pun, a riddle, a, a, but like the story transcends cha- transgender. It's much more about identity, I think, than it is about gender dysphoria or being born feeling like you were in the wrong body or the wrong gender. Well, I was struck by how little Westerly identified, well, not even how little Westerly identified as transgender, but actively did not want to be considered part of that community and, and almost seemed to be angry about the fact and then there was another paradox in that in which that that community certain elements then took westerly up as a role model and as somebody that had inspired other people to 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 be true to their real gender if you like so that that was another like crazy part of the story really like how how i mean what did you think about that because that when i read that part of the book i thought that seems strange to me that no uh, that's a great point i mean that was one of the there are so many contradictions. I've uh, I've truly never met a more complex, but also f- more fascinating person than than Peter Westerly. And no, I mean he he was homophobic. She was homophobic. I mean they he, she literally said more than once, I I don't I don't. It's unnatural to be gay. Um, and I thought, okay, you're wow. Yeah, you're you're identifying as and living as a woman, but you were born male. How can you not be? Uh, more compassionate towards people who have, you know, who who feel desire towards the same sex. Like I don't know how where you can sort of rule that out when you're doing something. And I, yeah, I mean, there there are all kinds of contradictions. And then the other thing was, yeah, you, um, she became a kind of transgender role model, but then didn't want to identify with that community. But that side of her, I actually, as I kind of asked questions there to other transgender people who I spoke with. Um, it's not uncommon. I mean, I think it's that thing, and this is like our inherent narcissism or what have you, but we all think we're so, our things are so unique. I mean, the same way, you know, and, and, and it can happen in a superior way and it can happen in a inferior outsider complex way where someone just feels like whatever's going on inside them emotionally is so unique to what they feel like they're not part of the group. Right. And that, and that can pe- lead people to, you know, mental illness and what have you. But I think, that side of Westerly, um, it was sort of like, I don't want to be lumped in with this group of people because my what's going on with me is unique to them. In many ways, with that side, I really thought about a lot. And I thought, you know, this might even be part of why surfing appealed to Peter, because it's not a team sport. It's an individual sport. And, and, and you, you get to surfing has that sort of introspection. I think when you're surfing, you're, you know, you can go surfing with your friends and be in the lineup with other people, but you really... It can also being in the ocean, floating around on the ocean, can really just sink you deeper into who you are, and 
and it builds an individuality and it builds a relationship with yourself, an inner life that is probably different to playing soccer or basketball or baseball or football or what have you. So when Westerly was saying, I don't want to be, don't lump me in with the transgender community, um, I thought, okay, well, that's almost, that's a kind of a consistent thing that's probably been there all along. The other thing we should say as well is like, and you did mention it earlier, but Peter was a genuine innovator, right? I mean, you know, whether it's his surfing, whether it's his competitive formats. And one other theme that seems to be consistent in the book is that he has these projects and he has these ideas, whether it's bought, I mean, there's, there's, there's countless examples. And then he, they, he doesn't quite get the credit that he deserves or they, they fail for him in a certain way. And it, often it seems like it's by self-sabotage. And it usually seems to be something that's born from this feeling that he's not being properly respected. He's not been given the credit that he's due. And, I mean, he's just called out Kelly Slater, right? Yes, yeah. For, 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 for saying he's nicked his, he's stolen his wave pool idea. Yeah. So there's, there's obviously like this this sort of chippiness to, to him throughout his life that he's sort of trying to transcend his you know prove that he belongs on the big stage you know is that is that is that fair to say very fair to say i think that's that's a great read you know um he invented man-on-man surfing which is which is used in every I mean, it's incredible yeah i mean what a legacy yes huge and, and you know had, that was in 1977 78 77 and um had he known probably that he was onto something that was going to be you know stick for four decades later he might have trademarked it or he might have been able to cash in on it. Um, he invented a wave pool. This is where the Kelly Slater controversy came in. He just developed a wave pool. He was start studying. Um, he got an engineering degree and he, he was he was studying the way wave, you know, the bottom curves. There's a great word, bath, bathymetry, I believe it's pronounced. But but he um, he studied that and he designed a wave pool. But the wave pool that he designed, uh, if I got the story right, he needed like a hundred million dollars to to make it, and so he kind of he he did all these things, but he sort of set the bar so high that they would they were almost destined to fail. And then I think somehow in the failures, maybe it it gave him there was almost a self sabotage, I, I think, um, and it would be yet you know it would give him this sort of ammunition to build his case that they're out to get me and no one's on my team. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because in studying the story, the very first Peter came from Queensland, which is a, which was in the 60s, kind of surfing backwater. We know of it now as the Superbank and Kira and Burley Heads and all these great waves. And the, there's a Gold Coast event every year. Um, but it, when Peter came of age or when Peter sort of first came to surfing, that was that was the backwater and everything was happening in Sydney. He won a local contest. He got invited to the um, Australian Championships in 1965. This is a long time ago. Um, in Sydney, and he flew down to Sydney, and he was the hot junior, and he was incredibly talented, and there was a competitors meeting the night before the event, and he went to it, I think he had a couple of beers, he somehow got into it with some guys there, and they jumped him, and they just beat the crap out of him, and he ended up in, in the hospital that night, got like many stitches in his face, the doctor somehow taped him up, and he showed up the next morning, and he went out, and he won his heat, he won every heat, he won the final, and there's a famous picture that is you know in the documentary and it's um peter holding his first place trophy with bandages all over his face and i think you know he's a 15 year old kid there i'm sure like that that ingrained in him that sort of outsider complex and and it was an interesting kind of um you know 
on one end, he triumphed above everyone and he won. So he's everyone's literally applauding him and, and giving him praise. But the, there's other side of, yeah, I got the shit beaten out of me last night. Why, you know, somehow I'm not being accepted into this group. So I think that that's been one of those recurring themes. It's fascinating. And I, I'm doing it as a layman. I mean, I, I'm, I haven't studied sociology or I, I don't have a degree to kind of go into it at the level that I do, at the level that I have through Westerly. But it's so fascinating to study someone's life from that sort of psychological way. Um, OK, this was instilled in you at a young age and it still exists today. Yeah, and, and still doing it. I mean, the Kelly, the Kelly Slater thing, when I read that, I was like, wow. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is a bold shout to, to uh, you know, the, the most publicized develop, inland surf development ever, you know, to suddenly stick your hand up and say, actually, you've stolen that from me. Yes. Um, is uh, is a big call. Yeah, really. yeah. What did you think when you when you heard that then? Yeah, it, it's, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but it sounded, it sounded familiar. I mean, it was, um, you know, I think Peter Druin had trademarked something for a wave pool in the, it was the 80s, so... And it was probably nothing like what Kelly came up with. And I, and it was also one of those things that, you know, it, what it, Westerly or Peter coming in saying, Kelly, you stole this or whatever. It, it's not right. It's absolutely not right. And um, I thought it was, I was kind of, I thought it was unfortunate that that was what Peter Druin all these years later was kind of coming to the surf world with. I mean, it was, it was coming with this sort of bitterness and anger that, Yet, yeah. a, yet again, you've passed me up or you've neglected me and not given me my due. Yeah, there's a bit in the book where you get quite annoyed, isn't there, where you're basically a bit like, oh, okay. So like literally every development in surfing was actually your idea. You know, it's 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 like Boy Who Cried Wolf style, isn't it? It's just at some point you have to start thinking, well, you know, perhaps there's another reason for all this, basically. Yeah, absolutely. That That's difficult. And it's, and I, I yeah, there was a bit where... Uh, Peter had, I mentioned that I was going to visit my friend Derek Hine who rides finless surfboards or free friction surfboards. And Westerly said to me, oh, you know, I um, I rode boards without fins and I saw Derek Hine one day and uh, we'd had a talk about it and now he's doing it and now he's known for it. And it was this thing of sort of, I started that too. And I thought this is almost every everything that's happened in surfing in the last 50 years, you're claiming that you are sort of a progenitor to, um, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's, it's sort of like a, um, Messiah complex of some kind. And, um, and it's unfortunate because I have so much respect for Westerly and Peter, and there's such an incredible person there, but this, I just, that, that side of sort of turning, um, everyone's out to get me is it's so hard to watch. I'm sure. I mean, it's, it's Derek that points out, westerly windina isn't it like west wind yes yeah because because i didn't it's it's so obvious in hindsight but yeah i i didn't pick it up either and and so what did you think when you heard that yeah i thought it was fascinating and I, and if i understand correctly i think that the well westerly had told me this early on but the westerly wind um is the offshore wind on the gold coast so it's the wind that kind yeah. of bl- blows the beautiful you know blows the waves into shape at least that's what was, everybody need. It's what everybody needs for surfing to be uh, at its best. Yes, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's yet another layer of cleverness on Westerly's behalf, what, though. I must what, say, what an, what an amazing metaphor. It's brilliant. Totally. And hidden in hidden in plain sight. Yeah. Uh, well, the book the book's brilliant. I really enjoyed it, and it's you know really not to 
blow smoke, but really sensitively handled given how very, very complicated a lot of these issues are. So how far off are you with the documentary? Th- thank you for saying so. Um, the documentary, we're right in the, the end, um, the 11th hour. Um, we, we've worked on it for a while and it was we were kind of struggling to find the end and then the end sort of came. Um, but no, I mean, I think in a month or so we're going to be finished and then going into post. So we have we have a few months before it's actually going to be all all done. But we're, we're definitely in the closing section. So nine, nine years, so be probably about 10 years after by the time you, you're done. Yeah. So what's what are you going to do when you finished? What's next? Um, I've been working on a, a novel about surfing, about my life in surfing, a kind of autobiographical novel and doing a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm, I write full time. And so I've always got half a dozen pieces that I'm working on some, some, short and more kind of disposable and then some that I'm deeply invested in. So um, I've been working on this book. That's the thing that I want to dive deep into. Well, perhaps it'd be interested to talk about your uh, your life in writing. I mean, earlier on, I was struck by the fact that you said, you, you said a couple of things. You said, oh, I got into it by accident. And then you, you, you mentioned imposter syndrome. So this is early 90s, you said, right? Mm-hmm. And when you say you got into it by accident, so that was like right place, right time, or how, how did it pan out that you that you ended up working for tracks? Well, you know, I I I traveled on the pro tour for five years, and at that time, now I think on the world tour there's ten events or something like that. The time that I was on tour, it was a it was really hard to make a living, and b there was like some years there was twenty eight or twenty nine events on the on the calendar, so. There was an insane amount of travel. I mean, I, I can't believe when I think back how often I was jumping on planes and flying to South Africa for an event in Cape Town and then the next day going up to Durban and then going over to Reunion Island and then going to Brazil. And, excuse me. And um, and so there was a there was a lot of time alone on planes. And it's it's strange to think of it this way, but but do that for five years and, and be on planes every every week or two weeks or more, um, I, I spent a lot of time reading and it was just sort of, okay, I'm alone and I've got a 16 hour flight or, you know, a stopover and such and such. But my, in some instances, the travel would be over 24 hours and you're stuck alone and, you know, you're listening to your music or whatever, but I always brought books. My father was, my father's an academic and writer and he always, you know, impressed upon me the importance of reading. And so I always brought books, and then I started keeping journals. My father encouraged me to keep journals as well. So I kind of just found my way into it in a in a you know non non academic way. Um, and so when my career finished in ninety one ninety two, I was living in Sydney. I wanted to. Um, I'd been keeping journals. I'd been reading a lot. I'd been you know reading surf magazines and kind of really into the stories is surf magazines are kind of driven by the pictures, but I was really into, you know, I had favorite writers and I kind of, I had sentences that played in my head and, and I was, I was sort of obsessed with the text. Um, so what, what writers were you, were you reading and admiring back then? You know, Derek Hine was a good friend. And at that time, Derek chronicled the, the world tour and he, he wrote these sort of dispatches from every contest and we would stay together and Derek would, you know, I'd be, I was in my early twenties and I was trying to win the contest and get in the top 16. And Derek was, 
he'd been a pro and he was retired and he coached some of the surfers, but he also wrote these pieces. And so we would be in a hotel and he would, the contest would finish and we'd go back and I'd be, you know, exhausted from the day on the beach. And he would be laying on his stomach, writing longhand the dispatch or the story of the, of the event that just happened. And, and all, you know, at times even trying out phrases on me, reading something aloud and saying, what do you think of this? Or he, I mean, he wasn't, he knew exactly what he was doing. He would, he didn't ask me what I thought, but he would share with me this stuff. And I was, I was fascinating. It was so interesting to see this world that I was in, you know, from the performing side, from being one of the pros, but then watching it be documented by a writer. And that really stuck with me. I mean, I just thought it was interesting because I would watch a final between Tom Kern and Aki and then the following morning, Derek would give me his longhand um, facts. Literally, he would fax in his stories to Surfer Magazine and he would give me that to read or he would even read it aloud to me. And I would, so I kind of, I got to see it through not only a journalist's eyes, but Derek Hines' eyes, which was, you know, there was, he was, had such expertise and such an incredibly original insight into it all. And that, that got that sort of ticking for me. Um, you saw that that was a possibility. Yes. That might be something you could do. Yeah, absolutely. And then what my career ended abruptly. And, you know, on some level, I can, I'll be brutally honest with it. In my, there was like a performative side of me that, that, that was drawn to writing. I mean, I, yes, I, and it slowly grew into what great literature is. But I think on some level, I'd been a pro surfer for five years. I'd been in those magazines as, a, as in pictures and sometimes in a profile. And when my career ended, it was it was this thing of I need to do something that feels creative or expressive of who I am. Um, for a short time, I worked in a surf shop, and that was gonna you know lead me to like bad drinking or even suicide if I kept at it because I'd been living this really privileged life of going around the world and competing and having you know eyeballs on me and signing autographs and being in magazines and doing something that. That felt important. You know, now I see it as like an extremely inflated importance. In, when you're an athlete, you you have to create this giant sort of mythical narrative in your head of what you're doing and make it really important. And it leads to, it's almost the opposite of what I do now, which is sort of observe other people on many levels. There's a selflessness to writing. I mean, yes, you get to, you, you, you go and print and it can seem like there's this authori- authorial godlike thing that happens, but it, when you're writing, and you know, me writing about Westerly, it's sort of get, forgetting myself and just following her around. In any case, I'm kind of jumping around here, but I wanted, when I first started writing, I was getting the self-expression that I may have gotten writing across a wave at one point. And I don't want to diminish it. I'm, I'm kind of being hard on myself and say, like, it, yes, there was an ego-driven part of it, but there was also this, from the age of 15, I rode waves and I competed in contests and I, and I surfed as a way of expressing who I am. And then when I started writing, I got to do the same thing, but I was kind of just doing it on the page. And, and that was so appealing to me. And the thing, one of the things early on that stayed with me, there's a writer, Tim Baker. He's written a lot about surfing. He lives in Australia. Wonderful guy. I kind of came to him as, a, as you know, this neophyte who was very enthused and wanted to get into writing. And, um, and he was very encouraging. And he said to me, writing is like an inverted triangle. 
the higher up you go, the more space there is. You know, it just keeps enlarging. It keeps getting bigger. And that was really what I found. I mean, I started with reading Derek Hind and Craig Stesick and Steve Pesman and Drew Campion and all the all the people in the surf world in the 80s, let's say, 70s and 80s. And then suddenly, you know, I, I not suddenly, and then I became much interested in things outside of surfing. Um, the, another thing that stayed with me from that period, the, the writer Nick Carroll, who writes a lot about surfing, um, I was real enthusiastic, and he said, you know, to be to be a good writer, you have to be interesting, and to be interesting, you have to be interested. And it was this thing of, you got to read a lot, you got to learn a lot, you got to experience a lot, you, and you have to be passionate about the things that you want to learn about, you know. So, so all those, those things were really important. I'll never forget them. And what about non-surfing? influences in terms of writers you know you you said you were sounds like you were getting through a few books back in the day so yeah i mean who, I, who, who who were your influences back then they were kind of usual suspects or what i in many ways like gateway writers and i say that not to they're so good but they appeal i mean charles bukowski to me was great and it was and i can see i see a lot of young younger people drawn to bukowski because he sort of speaks his truth um I was really into Henry Miller. I was living in Sydney at the time, and Henry Miller, I was reading his novels that were set in Paris, and it was this thing of the expat, and it was kind of romanticizing being outside of your world. I mean, I even read, read James Baldwin, who was talked about living in, in Europe. And, and um, so, you know, writers that were, I think on some level, it was, it was to, it was helping me to romanticize and give meaning to my life abroad. Um, so I think I always think of Henry Miller as being really important at that time. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of reading everything that came my way. Yeah. And so you started working for tracks and surface. So for, uh, initially you would, you were specialized in surf journalism. Is that the case? Or did you, yes. did you always start with uh, bigger topics and bigger projects? No, I went straight into surf journalism and, um, I became the associate editor of Waves magazine, and they shared the same office as Tracks. And uh, it was a great group of guys who were all really into writing and making magazines. And it was kind of this new world for me. I mean, you know, the pro, my pro surf, surfing life was fantastic, but it was also somewhat with the blinders on. I mean, it was going around the world, but it was also trying to set the focus on trying to win the event. And therefore, you're not able to kind of drink up the culture the way you would if you were if you were um, if you were there as a writer, for instance, or as a journalist, and so even though I stayed within the surf world, it was almost two different mindsets. The one that I brought with me as a, as a competitive athlete was blinders on, you know, do the and mind you, these were the eighties and early nineties, and there was a lot of fun and and partying to be had, and surfing was still very. It wasn't so big business as it is today. It wasn't so kind of um, serious. So we did a lot of raging, but it was also the biggest focus was to do well in the event. So don't do anything that's going to distract too far from that. When I kind of laid down my competitive jersey and picked up the pen, um, it was exactly the opposite. It was go and and just, you know, drink it all up, experience all of it. And I did, and I read a lot of the beats, you know, I was reading, I, so I had this sort of on the road like mentality of, of whatever, however I can kind of experience and I got to travel a lot. So I was writing a lot about surf contests and travel pieces around the world. So wherever I went, it was um, get everything is fodder. Everything is interesting. You know, yes, you might be writing about 
Tom Carroll and Ross Clark Jones in Tahiti, um, but the fisherman who you meet on the beach who wants to drag you up to the bar and, you know, sit and chat with you is that's like part of what it is to be a writer. You go along with that and you experience all of it and you eat whatever comes your way and you drink whatever comes your way, literally and figuratively. You know, it was it was this that to me was such a great relief. I mean, I, I it's an interesting kind of lesson because when my pro surfing career ended, I thought it was the end of my 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 first dream had had declared bankruptcy. It was over. I was done. And I thought, it's all going to be downhill for here. And then as writing opened up and kind of expanded, it did exactly the opposite. I thought, God, I can't believe what a little bubble I was living in. And this here is so much more interesting because every just just experiencing life and, and learning and, and sort of, you know, bear hugging the world, if you will, was so... Um, part of what it what it meant and of course i was overly enthusiastic in that way um but it was a nice thing what what was it that um ended your career then you said you did five years on the tour five years and i did i had middling results you know i i finished in the 40s i think you know my my best years i finished the year at 44 my my sponsor was quicksilver i started on the tour in 86 87 um and I had some good results. I, you know, I made the semifinals of a couple of big events, and those were those are great memories. But but I I was like, not not performing to the degree that they'd hoped to see. And in 1991, there was this recession, and and Quicksilver had recently gone public, so they had to answer to shareholders. So it was a little bit more cutthroat. And you know, I had a great relationship with them. I'm so grateful to them for sending me out on the road for five years. But then they finally said, Jamie, you're not you're not cutting it. Um, and I could have kept pressing on, but I kind of knew there was, you know, that that era. I always jokingly say, you know, when I told my my parents I wanted to be a, a pro surfer, it was like saying I want to follow the Grateful Dead around, you know, the country. It was it was not that was not like a good thing to tell your mom and dad. Now it's very different. There are little league parents who are grooming their child to to become the next surf star. At that time, it was sort of, okay, you know, you're kind of going to be skipping out of college. These are your college years and you, what you want to kind of gypsy around the world as a surfer and pick up 300 bucks here in a contest. Doesn't sound like such a great thing for your for the long term. Um, and so, so yeah, that, I mean, that was, that was a lot of that. So at what point did your, uh, did your horizon stop broadening then with, with the, the subjects that you wanted to write about? Probably, you know, so, so when I when I f kind of fell off tour and, and w I was living in Sydney and worked at waves and tracks, it was 92. And it was, it was like, as I said, it was kind of like the, 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 the blinders had come off or it was as if I had my first sort of psychedelic experience. Like the world suddenly glistened in a way that it never had because I was so focused, myopically fo focused on surf contests. And so that year in Sydney, I spent a year there. Um, it was, it was just wanting to experience as much as I could and I had the outlet of the surf magazines. And then I kind of realized that a lot of the things that I was interested in, you know, this is pre-internet. So a lot of Sydney was sort of, or Australia was kind of isolated in terms of a lot of the pop culture stuff that I was interested in. So I moved back to LA. I moved to Venice Beach. And when I moved to Venice, that was when I realized there was a lot more than just surfing. I mean, I, I fell in with a lot of interesting musicians, visual artists, writers, etc., And so surfing was a big part of my life, and I was working for Surfing Magazine first as a as a um, 
staff writer and then I became the editor. But I was also kind of running in a lot of different scenes. And can you describe what that was like then? It was an interesting time. You know, there was there was kind of this bohemian culture that, that and, and I'm sure someone that lived in Venice in the 60s would say, what a joke, but it, 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 it felt that way for me, and it certainly felt that way coming off the tour. There had been this recession. The economy was down. Um, there were the Rodney King riots, so there was kind of a lot of racial tension in L.A. at that time. And I definitely felt like I didn't, I didn't feel pressure to sort of, um, how to say, you know, and so I, let me try another way into this. Having been a pro surfer at the time that I was, it was a very sort of piecemeal income. I, I would pick up 300 bucks here. I would get a thousand bucks from a sponsor there. And I learned to live sort of hand to mouth and I learned to live somewhat frugally um, and live with financial insecurity. So when I moved to Venice and I decided, oh, I want to be a freelance writer. How can I pull this off? I kept my overhead really, really low. Um, you know, I didn't have a lot. I wasn't not a lot of material value. I, I, did, I wasn't interested in having things. I was just interested in this sort of lifestyle. And um, yeah, I mean, I live with some musicians. Um, we stayed up late at night, um, smoked a lot of weed, rode our bikes on the bike path at midnight. I mean, we're, there was an, there was this attract. I was attracted to this sort of underbelly. I felt like and in many ways, I was kind of kicking against what I had experienced because the late 80s, while there was not a huge amount of money, surfing kind of blew up and it was very commercial. These are like the fluoro days of the big logos on the surfboards. And I was kind of going exactly the when I stepped off tour, I wanted to go the other direction. I wanted to kind of get out of what felt like a sort of bubble, bubblegum, superficial world and try to relate on. I don't know. I was trying to get into something that. Um, and maybe, maybe in in somewhat in a in a, I was genuine and earnest, but I was maybe trying too hard, or I just I I was trying to shake off kind of the fact that I was like a middle class suburban white boy, and I was trying to um, experience what it would be like to be an urban sort of um, alley alley kid. Right. So, what about the work at this point? What were you? I was writing pieces for Surfing Magazine. I was writing for um, a magazine called Bikini. There was a magazine that was really popular in the, in the early 90s, mid-90s, called Raygun. It was a music magazine. It was Yeah, I remember Raygun. Yeah, yeah, it was fabulous uh, graphic design by David Carson, art direction yeah, by David right. Carson. It was, it was David Carson, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, of course. yeah. Who'd actually worked at, in, surf, in the surf and skate world before that. Um, but... Reagan had a magazine called Bikini, and I, I got assignment. I mean, I got one assignment I got was to to write about the Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam, which is the big marijuana festival there. You know, I got I got I would write was writing about music, um, the Warp Tour. I think I wrote about. Um, so I was getting I got a, a fantastic assignment to write about S and M. I knew nothing about S and M, and I was suddenly thrown into a place called Club Fuck in West Hollywood. I met a dom- wow. I met a dominatrix there who threw her cigarette at me. And, um, and so I was, you know, and I didn't really even know what I was doing. Um, but maybe that was, maybe that was good. Maybe that was helpful. I just was sort of, um, you know, give me an assignment and I'll go for it. And yeah, it sounds like you were, you were open to it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I look back now and I think, okay, there could have been, there could have been more, um, how to say, 
I could have been more rigorous and I could have been more serious as a writer. I mean, the, the fun side of it was really appealing to me. And as I say, I mean, I was I was inspired by the beats. I was so that so an MFA from a good school might have served me very well at that time. But it also yeah. might have worked against my sort of, oh, I shrug the shoulders and I just dive into it. But yeah. but I read that. But I read stuff from, that I wrote from that time. And it seems very naive. And I don't you know, I didn't I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, well, it's, it sounds like a you know, you apprenticeship on the job basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what what a brilliant way of doing it. Yeah. So what about today then? You you obviously we've talked about Westerly and 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 that whole project. And you said you you know you normally have like five or six different things on the on the go. So what are you working on right now? What's the typical sort of workload for you? Yeah, right now I'm trying to finish a fiction piece about a chimpanzee. Um, visiting a house with a lot of beautiful art, contemporary art, and it's for W Magazine. Um, I'm work. I'm working on a, a a TV show for Outside TV with Huck, and it's called Giant Steps, and it's about. Um, we did an episode about the Marshall Brothers, Trace and Chad Marshall, and their. Um, they're great surfers who started a clothing company and kind of about their uh, rite of passage into making their, their way. Um, yeah. So that's it. I mean, it's, I, I, it's I, always a lot. It's hard for me to even talk about them because I'm kind of making them as I go. So they're not, I, I kind of, all I can sort of do is stutter my way through them, which is how, how the actual <laughs> creation goes. I was about to, so that's another thing I was about to ask you, because obviously, for writers, the, uh, the 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 struggles of writing are a perennially popular topic. So, do you have any routines that you need to stick to? Do you have any any way that you're approaching? I mean, I always find it really fascinating when you. Yeah, I think there's a book, isn't it? Like morning routines. It's literally like how people get themselves into, you know, like use those routines to get themselves into a creative state. Is that something you you follow, or do you, do you have a, something that works for you? I go in and out, and and I think. You know, if I were in a position where all I was working on was one thing, I would probably find a schedule where I would it would be more banker's hours kind of thing where, you know, by 9 a.m. I'm at my desk doing this. Because I'm doing a lot sort of juggling pieces, there are meetings, I'm interviewing people. Um, so because because of that, it, it, it makes my days kind of structureless. What I do, what I have learned to do, and it's and it's taken me time, but I've kind of learned to just default to work. I mean, that's it's become almost my nervous habit where I don't really sit. I used to procrastinate. I used to circle around and kind of let um, let the writing that I know I have to do become this source of anxiety, and and I'm almost afraid to even get into it. And now I I, I kind of don't do that at all, and I'm, I'm sort of always doing it, and I. You know, literally when I'm driving, I have a, a notepad next to me and at red lights, I'm scribbling little ideas or passages, you know, a, a sentence that sort of bridges one thing to the next. I mean, it's kind of, I, I'm, I live with it. And, you know, honestly, there was a time when I was 25 and I first started writing. I'm 50 years old, so I've been doing this for 25 years. When I first started, I, what I'm doing now looked so romantic to me. Now that I do it, it's, it's not <laughs> that's not the case i mean i'm glad to be in it and i'm glad that that it i love it. i do really love it and it still gives me great joy and fulfillment but it's also 
it all feels like it overlaps. It all feels kind of haphazard. Um, Does it feel as fulfilling as you probably imagined it would when you were 25? I would say more than I ever imagined. And I say that um, because I I said earlier that I, I had a, a kind of... Im- I still have a kind of imposter complex. And it's maybe because I came to writing later, maybe because I didn't come from... Uh, formal education. I don't have a call an MFA from a great school as a writer. You know, I came in as a surf writer, for God's sake. Like, is there anything more illegitimate? Is there, is there a greater oxymoron? <laughs> when I moved to New York, it was like, you know. Snow, snowboard writer. <laughs> yeah. Um, Speaking from experience. <laughs> right. So, um, no, but, you know, I really, um, I guess in the last decade of my life, things have been, you know, life is taken some turns that have really tested me and writing has been this thing that I can go to that kind of buttresses me up and it really has it sounds so cliche but I it it has kind of saved my life or it has um given me hope in the darkest of times and so it's to answer that question it's been more fulfilling than I ever imagined and it, it really that thing going back to what I said earlier Tim Baker saying it's an inverted triangle the higher up you go the more space there is on the sides I've really found that it keeps getting richer and richer, and I'm 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 so grateful for that. But the actual execution, the way it goes, I mean, it's always there, and therefore, I'm at dinner sometime, but I'm with friends or whatever. But I'm only halfway there because I'm thinking about this thing. Is that is that a mindset that you're describing? Something that you've built up almost as you've become more experienced. Personally, I find if I'm immersed in a project then that mindset you're talking about, where it's almost like you're a sponge for like any idea or any piece of information that will help the project that you're working on. And yeah, I I also find myself writing down any scrap of an idea to, to, to come back to. Is that something that you've developed? Because it almost sounds like that's that's the norm for you now. You know, that's 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 the mindset that you're in when you when you're at work. Was that is that a muscle that you've almost grown, if you like, or yeah, it, no, it is, or, or is it, or is it a habit? Is it as simple as it being a habit? I think it's a habit. I think it's kind of both. You know, I um, in in many ways, it's simply survival, and I say that monetarily. I mean, I need to keep working. What you know, a lot of the stuff I do, it doesn't pay tons of money, so I have to do a lot of it, and um, and so. Yeah, sort of inadvertently, as I say, this would have looked so romantic to me from my 25 year old self. And now it's more, I'm, a, I'm sitting at my desk right now talking to you via Skype and I've got notes all around me. And, and at some point that would have looked like this romantic idea of a writer at work. And yet the, I, the artist, the artist in the garret. Yeah, kind of thing. yeah. And yet it's, it's, and yet, and yet I also see it, it's more just a mess. And it's more like, did I get the end right on that story? And was that, you know, the true thing to write there or what have you. And so it's more, no, I mean, I, I just sort of found my way here. You know, the, the thing, um, long form stuff has been good that way. I did a, you know, I did so much journalism. And then really this Becoming Westerly book was, I, I'd written a, a memoir before and it's as yet unpublished memoir. So I spent a lot of time writing, you know, a 270, 300 page manuscript, something like that. Um, and then I wrote Westerly and I wrote Westerly fairly quickly. But I think the long form, let me, uh, let me start again. When I, when I got a, the, the deal to write this book of Becoming Westerly, my agent asked me how quick I thought I could write it. And 
at the time I was a fresh widower and my life was a real mess and there was nothing, there was either like deep grief and depression or going to work. And so I basically came back to my, my agent and said, let's, let's, I'll write this thing in four months. And I made a lot of notes and I've been working on it for a while. And so I had this thing where I had to write, you know, I think I, at one point on my calendar, I had, I had to write like 2000 words per day to sort of make the book work. And that's a lot of writing. And, and I did it. And, and, and I actually did it with joy. It was sort of the further I went into it, the realized, the more I realized this is actually really fun. This is not a chore. And this is, I'm not trying, I'm not sitting at my desk, pulling my hair out, wanting to do something else. I'm actually very, very happy to be here. And then when I go to lunch, I'm stuffing paper and pen in my pocket because I know ideas are going to come to me and I'm going to go back and race back to my desk to keep working. So it, yeah, I mean, I guess I, um, it just happened over time. You've written really beautifully about um, loss, grief, and you mentioned the death of your wife. That must have been a pretty horrendous experience, to put it lightly. Yes. Um, how were you able to, to, to work? Was, was work the salvation then? Was that almost what you used to cope with that experience? It kind of sounds like in a way it was. Yeah, I think so. You know, when it's... it's so my wife died in 2013 um, and she died suddenly. And um, it's interesting, you know, when I was a pro surfer, one of the things that was that was going on during my time on tour is my oldest brother had a drug problem. He was he was a he was a junkie um, and he he overdosed um, in 1987 fatally. And th- and it was right. It was this thing of right as I was sort of in in my life on tour, getting serious, trying to win contests, um, he died. And my response to it in in some weird way out of the sadness of it all was I literally the moment I heard that he died, my I sat alone and I just thought I'm going to win the next surf contest. I'm going to win the next surf contest. I was kind of trying to get out of the sadness in it, of it all. And that was like my survival mechanism. Um when my wife died, it was four years ago, my response was, I got to write about this. I'm going to write my way out of this. It was almost as if, you know, the, the way for me to deal with this is just through writing. And so so I had this sort of flood of memories of our 11 years together. And I, I recorded all of them. And somehow just the, you know, just putting it all on paper felt like there was some, um, it gave meaning to it all. It, it, um, I don't know what the word is for it, but it was, it was a way, it was a way to remember, I suppose. And that, um, so that helped me. And then, and then within that, there became just the simple, the writing itself. I mean, it was sort of, I was just amazed at what, what memories were coming back and how, how, how much I remembered. And so it just, it, it almost felt like I, some voice from above just said, just keep writing this, keep writing this, keep writing this. And that's what I did. So again, like writing became my sort of default or my nervous habit, and it became a way to, to work through something. Well, I'll put, I'll put a couple of links on the site to some of the, I mean, there's a film you did with Hook, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Which is really, which is really beautiful. And then there's a, there's a there's one piece in particular I'm thinking of. I'll get the link from you and uh, and and people can check those out because I think that yeah they're very moving. Both of those. Thanks. Um, well, I think 
we're about an hour and 15 in okay it's gone pretty gone pretty quick my side we should probably start try to wrap it up really um i think it'd be good to talk about surfing again sure you know, we've talked about your, your past as a surfer and be be good to there's i mean one of my favorite bits in uh, becoming westerly is when you do go surfing with derek hind that's i mean that's right at the end of the book isn't it so what how often are you surfing these days you know sometimes once a week sometimes seven days a week i i go in and out um i yeah I, I'm, I'm still deeply in it i recently did a trip in the indian ocean with some friends and i i was surfing three times a day and i was kind of surprised at how it how i almost sort of reverted back to my early 20s or teenage self um just in obsessing over it so i mean it's still very much a part of my life and a, and important to me and and there is that self-expression side but you know the it kind of depends on the quality of the waves and then how busy I am. I mean, I'm certainly my writing is my priority and, um, yeah. and yet surfing is a good way to kind of get a break and, and kind of wash it all off and, and re and reset. So what does surfing mean to you now? Is it different for what it meant to you when you were 18? I'm sure it is, but you know, yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question. I was thinking about this yesterday. I had a fun surf yesterday and I, the, here's the, here's the only Here's the sad part of being sort of an ex-pro surfer is for so many years, from age 15 to 25, I competed regularly and almost every surf session was aimed towards some contest coming up. You know, I was kind of training for it. And I know that sounds really sad. That sounds almost sacrilegious to the beauty of surfing, but but that's the truth. It was, um, you know, I'm going to be going to South Africa for the Gunston 500 and I'm in my mind projecting myself into these heats and doing that really gave surfing meaning and, and, and I could turn horrible waves into, um, an imagined, you know, final against Brad Gerlach or Tom Curran or Mark Acalupo in the Gunston 500 that I would be competing in, in two weeks. And, and so it sort of animated my surf world in a really, really great way. When I stopped competing, I really, I, I went, I almost had to sort of find meaning in surfing again. And so for, for me now, I try to keep my ego as far removed as possible um, and just go out and kind of have an existentialist sort of, um, you know, non-goal-oriented surf. Just go out and have fun and and try to f- flow with the wave um, and kind of just be as present in, in there as possible. Although a lot of times I go, I go in the water and I get ideas for writing stuff and I run out and go straight to my car and scribble something down with a wet hand dripping all over. But so I, it's, I kind of just let whatever it's, it's like, I, I, I almost have a kind of yogic approach to it, which is like, whatever happens while I'm there is okay. And of course I'm trying to sort of, you know, in yoga, you stay with the breath, for instance, I, I kind of try to stay with the rhythms of the ocean, but, but, but I do allow my mind to drift. And that, that's why I don't like crowds. I mean, I really like surfing as far away from people as possible or with a friend because I want to either, you know, if I'm with a friend, have a fun conversation and just sort of let that be this part of surfing um, or be out alone and just let my head kind of see where my head goes. So uh, what board are you riding right now? I'm just interested, really. Bit of a surf geek question. No, I have a five foot ten Channel Islands pod that I absolutely love. I've had it for about eight years. Um, 
And it's a board designed for kind of smaller, maybe fatter waves, although it goes good in pretty much everything. But um, but that's my that's the board I ride the most. And have you got any trips coming up? No trips coming up. Nope. Nose to the grindstone riding for the most part and finishing westerly. But I think at some point over the summer, I'll go somewhere. I was thinking Mexico. Nice. Yeah. Well, Jamie, that's been absolutely fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. Well, th- and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat to me for this. No, thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. And I hope I hope I made sense. Um, I'm kind of I've kind of been all we, I know we've jumped around a lot, but I hope it uh, it all falls together. OK. Yeah, it's been great. I mean, that's it's been a conversation, which is the whole point, isn't it? Yeah. You know? so, yeah. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Thank you. So there you go. That was my conversation with Jamie Brissick. And uh, yeah, what a fascinating guy, eh? And what an amazing story the whole Westerly Windina saga truly is. Elsewhere, the reaction to the podcast continues to be great. I've still got people signing up to the newsletter at an alarmingly fast rate and inexplicably then sometimes uh, unsubscribing in record time. Still absolutely clueless as to what that's all about. But if that's how you like to roll, then uh, you do you. Go for it. And uh, yeah, reviews are still coming in on iTunes, which is great. Thank you so much for everybody who's taken the time to do that. I'm going to kind of explain why I'm harping on so much about that. So when you start a podcast, and you'd be surprised actually at how much of a faff it is. It is not a very intuitive thing to get a podcast out there and on iTunes. Anyway, there's a lot of articles out there and a surprising number of them are dedicated to gaming iTunes and achieving what appears to be the holy grail for all new podcasters, which is getting into the iTunes new and noteworthy section. Now, apparently, if you hit this primo piece of internet real estate, vast new audiences are yours to tap into. And the way to achieve it, apparently, is by getting a lot of five-star reviews. Now, not to blow my own trumpet, but in the three short months I've been live, I've had over 30 five-star reviews, and not all of them are from my friends and family, which is great. And yeah, I've not hit the new and noteworthy thing, and I did think it was a load of bollocks, to be honest, but, you know, I thought it was worth a go. Anyway, I did some digging, and apparently it's because I was in the wrong category, sports. So I was fighting it out against the real big hitters like Football Weekly, and so on, Um, and not outdoor, which apparently is the category that is my rightful place alongside people such as Kyle Tim and Surf Splendor and the other small number of pioneering action sports podcasts who've been there a lot longer than I have and do great work, and you should definitely go and check some of those out because some of them are great. Anyway, after a lot of hair pulling out, I finally worked out how to get into the outdoor section, which is where I now reside on the iTunes store. So we'll see. If you uh, fancy joining me in this little experiment, you know what to do. Leave me a review and let's see if we can get me on the front page of iTunes. Like I say, I am absolutely completely dubious. And to be honest, there's a lot of people finding the podcast without that. So, you know, go figure. But yeah, let's see if it works. Um, And on that subject, and I'm entirely serious, if anyone out there is thinking of starting a podcast and wondering how on earth to go about it, drop me a line at uh, podcast at wearelookingsideways.com because I really could save you a lot of time and trouble by uh, giving you a quick primer on how to get yourself set up and on iTunes. So there you go. Anyway, thanks for listening. Um, Next week, if the planets align and uh, everything goes to plan, I might be able to finally drop the Tom K from Finisterre interview, which would be great because it's a good one. Um, but yeah, I've got a big backlog now, so hopefully I'll be able to get them out a little bit more regularly. So yeah, subscribe and uh, keep an ear out for them. Thanks very much. See you later.